Okay, good morning. Parshas Kiseitse. It's packed full of uh, mitzvahs. Fantastic. Every Parsha is fantastic. But this Parsha is really fantastic. Page uh, 1046 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. As is our practice, we'll do a uh, quick overview of the Parsha, which is never really quick. That's also our practice. And uh, then we'll go specifically into the Psukkim that we want to take a closer look at today. So uh, last week's Parsha ended... Parsha Shoftim ended with the story of the Egla Rufa, the individual whose corpse is found between cities. And this morning's Parsha begins with the story of going to war. Which our Bali Musa say, it's not coincidental that we read this during the month of Elul. And that the, uh, the Baal Shem Tov, among others, encouraged us to read this as a story of going out to war. It does not only mean literally, militarily participating in an army, in a battle, but it means with ourselves, the Yetzirah. That this is a description, included within this is a description of how to triumph, how to overcome against the Yetzirah. So the Torah tells us the story. person captures a... a um, into captivity, the triumph of their enemy, what happens when, when these soldiers see a beautiful woman, and they desire her. Again, you can see how you can read into this description of the struggle, the battle with the Yetzirah. So the Torah gives us specific obligations. We are supposed to make her less beautiful, shall we say, shave her head, cut her nails, change her clothing, and she cries for her parents. And uh, this is a big discussion. I think it's a fascinating perspective because Rashi here uh, quotes that this section is Torah here does not mean to describe a utopian society. And I think it's actually very revealing about the Torah in general. You know, within literature, there's a genre of literature called utopian literature, which uh, describes what the perfect world would be. What would the perfect society look like? And one could debate... Does the Torah seek to describe the perfect world? Is the Torah a blueprint for the perfect society? And the answer from Parshas Kisete, the beginning at least, is clearly no. The Torah is not trying to describe a perfect society. The Torah is trying to describe an imperfect society. Torah responds to the Yetzirah. And that's what's going on over here. The Torah is not really permitting the soldier to do these things. But the Torah believes that by giving or granting license, the soldier will not actually follow through. By being given permission, the soldier will not need to indulge. But the fact that the Torah corresponds with man's frailty, man's temptation, by man I mean generic man, it reveals that the Torah is not describing some perfect world. The Torah is complete with the concessions to man's imperfections. In fact, those who learn the daf, today's daf yomi. Today's daf yomi. What are we up to? Nandalad? Sachem Nandalad? So today's Dafyomi had a number of lists. Seven things that were created by Hashemoshos on Nerev Shabbos, seven things that... So one of the things the Gemara gives a list of all things that were created before the world was created. Today's Gemara, Sachem Nadal, today's Daf. One of the things created before the world was Torah. We've spoken about that often. God looked into the Torah and created a world corresponding with it. We might have talked about it last week, in fact. I don't even remember. That God first came up with a list of principles of values, of virtues. And then he created a world that would allow us to live it. We did talk about it last week because we talked about, then we talked about the relationships of parents, children, and Avina Maket. That was last week, right? So we said that God created a world corresponding with the values that he wanted to create. So he wanted to create a value called discipline. He created a world that had food. He wanted to create a value of time awareness. He created something called time. He wanted to create where we relate to Him in different ways. So He created a world of relationships, parents and children, 
and kings and slaves, and masters and servants, and husbands and wives, and so on and so forth. So Torah is one thing that was created before the world. God first created the Torah, He looked into it, i.e. His values, His virtues, priorities, and then created a world which would allow us to realize those values. But the Gemara today's daf lists the second thing that was created before the world. I find it incredible. Tshuva. Gemara says, Tshuva was created before the world was created. You know how powerful that is? Because what does that mean? It means that Tshuva, the process of repentance, the need to repair, is not bidyeved. It's not after the fact. It's not a concession. It's not that God created a world with man and we make mistakes. We're human. We're, we're, we're feeble. We're weak. But rather, God created a world understanding in advance that we would make mistakes. And He compensated. He created something called tshuva. And before the world was ever created, it's like Rafu Kodam Lamaka. God always provides the healing. He always provides the solution before the problem. So He created the concept of tshuva, the pathway, the possibility of tshuva before creating a world. So similarly here, the beginning of Parshas Kisetse, Eshes Yifas Tawar. It's not a utopian society. It's not a perfect world. That doesn't mean that we should embrace our imperfections. It doesn't mean we should celebrate our imperfections. It doesn't mean that we should give in to our imperfections and temptations. But it means that we should understand that they're part of creation. We can't beat ourselves up and we can't kill ourselves and we can't become paralyzed by them. We have to understand that that's part of the human condition. And that tshuva was created as our way out. We were given an opportunity to repair and to improve in our way out. Lo Torah ela keneged yetzer hara. Okay, Torah then goes on and tells us the story of the Ben Sora Umora, the rebellious child. Again, we're not getting into any of this in depth, but the Gemara tells us the rebellious child never actually existed. There's much to be learned pedagogically. There's so much to be learned educationally or, or parentally from the section of Ben Sora Umora. Refersh has beautiful, beautiful... Um, Exegesis on this section in the halachas of the Ben Soro Moro, which again never applied, but the parents' voice have to sound the same, they have to say the same. So the, the refresh gets into the idea what? What's the purpose? What's the purpose? The Gemara says to teach. There's values, there's lessons we can extrapolate, we can draw from it, even if it never existed. So the Ben Soro Mora as an individual never existed, but the lessons about parenting and about rebelliousness, nevertheless, we can draw. Lahagdil Torah gave us the opportunity to learn Torah and to spread its, its values. You know, they say, they say sarcastically, if a person has a rebellious child, but the teacher doesn't listen to the voice of the father or the mother. What do they do? And they take him. Our son is a is rebellious. His teacher is disgusting and despicable. You stone the more the teacher, and he dies. And you destroy the evil. Right. So that's the sarcastic way to read the section: is that parents never recognize the own the problem in their own children. Instead, they take the more. Our son is rebellious. Okay, yeah, he's got problems. It's the teacher who won't listen to us. You take him outside. Of course, this is not meant literally. It's sarcastically. But that's today's day and age. Yecheved likes to say, my wife likes to say, when we were kids, our parents went to parent-teacher conferences, so that night we would shake. We were nervous they would come home, what they would say. Now, parent-teacher conference night, the, parent, the teachers shake. The parents are going to come in and what the parents are going to beat them up and what they're going to tell them and what the... So right? 
So that's, uh, that's what's going on the Ben Sarabar. But we learn a lot about parenting and speaking with one voice and relaying one message and, and so on and so forth. Okay. Then we have the prohibition in the case where capital punishment is uh, carried out, is executed, the person cannot be left to hang. The obligation to bury on that day, which we have the parallel halacha, the obligation to bury on that day. Does it apply on that day? What about today with refrigeration? What if it will bring greater honor to the deceased to wait? for more family to arrive, and so on and so forth. So we have those halachas. Then the, uh, the parsha continues, A theme in our parsha, You cannot close your eyes. Lehisalem is to be hidden, to conceal. You can't close your eyes. When there's suffering going around you, your friend's uh, animal, or your friend, or whatever his case, you should, this we talked about in the past, you should mold yourself into the type of person who is incapable of closing your eyes. In other words, there's one thing to be an insensitive person who does chesed, because you have to, you're supposed to, you pressure, feel pre-pressure to, and there's another to be a person who's incapable of not reacting with chesed. What the Torah is trying to do, this is what I wrote about in the weekly last week, the Torah is trying to do is inculcate within us, cultivate within us the chesed instinct. Not just to be an insensitive, self-absorbed person who happens to do chesed, but to be a chesed person. Or what we call a baal chesed or a baalas chesed. There's a difference between being a person who does chesed and a chesed personality. Torah is trying to say is, lo suchal lehisalem. It doesn't say, don't be misalem, don't close your eyes. It says, lo suchal, make yourself into the person who's just incapable of closing your eyes who's incapable of not reaching out, who's incapable of not stopping and helping. And this is the essence of Torah. This is really what Torah is all about, making us and fashioning us into good people. And all of the system of Torah is there for that. And that's what I wrote about, something that weighs heavily on me. The question that plagues me is, how do we have Torah communities who are scrupulous and vigilant in the observance of Torah, and it's not yielding for them to be good people? How could it be? That's all of Torah, is to be more sensitive, to be more kind, to be more honest, to have greater integrity, to have a greater set of values. So how could it be? What are we doing wrong? We have to really reflect on it as a community, and we have to work on it, because the essence, the goal is lo to get to a point where we're incapable of closing our eyes. Good, let's keep going. We have the prohibition of uh, cross-dressing, one is not allowed to wear the... Uh, clothing of the opposite gender. Then we have our psukim. We're going to examine closer today. Ki karei kansipur lefanecha. The uh, idea of sending the mother bird away when we take the eggs. We're going to get into that. The mitzvah of ma'ake of the roof. You have to build a fence around the roof. This mitzvah of ma'ake doesn't only apply to a roof. A roof. If you come from the Midwest, it applies also to a balcony. It applies to a staircase, an elevated platform that's dangerous. One has to fulfill the mitzvah of makkah. A lot of people have balconies in their home, you know, a landing. If, it, if the uh, railing isn't high enough, you're in violation of this prohibition, of this mitzvah of makkah. You're not allowed to uh, plant to uh, plant hybrids, crossbreed. You're not allowed to uh, plow with an ox and a donkey together, a form of kind of mixing and crossbreeding. Shatnez, you're not allowed to mix wool and linen. Rav Hirsch explains all of these things, that God created a world with set definitions. And when we seek to create new definitions, we're infringing on God's territory. 
So part of an expression of emuna of faith in God, is the acceptance of the boundaries of the world that He created. And when we try to experiment, we are crossing a boundary into His territory and trying to create in ways that are beyond us. Now, that's beautifully said. It's difficult to reconcile with the general, the kivshua, the mandate of conquering the world, the mandate of scientific and, and uh, technological progress. Right? In general, we believe we should conquer the world, the kivshua. So why can't I conquer the world by crossbreeding and creating hybrids and new species and new types of foods and new types of... So one has to work out those details. But here you have these uh, three expressions of this prohibition having to do with the seeds in the field, having to do with the animals, and having to do with our clothing, los silbas shatnas. Then... How do you explain? Today's daf was created on Motzei Shabbos by Allah. What? So why would it create something that we're not allowed to do? Okay, the mule. You have to explain the mule. Yeah, I'm grateful that we don't have to make a bracha on the mule as part of uh, Havdalah, I was thinking during the daf. <laughs> the daf says that there were two things created on Motzei Shabbos. Fire. It was on Motzei Shabbos on Saturday night that Adam Arishon, Adam banged two rocks together, found a spark and invented fire. That was the first fire. So to commemorate that historical gift to the world, we make Bore Me'oreha Eish. That's why it's part of Havdalah on Saturday night. And the Gemara entertains. Maybe you make that bracha when you see a fire. Not even part of Havdalah. And we say, no, do it as part of, do it as part of Havdalah. But if you don't have a fire, you don't have to f- go chase after it. It's if you have access to fire, then it's part of Havdalah. And the Gemara says, the second thing created on Motzei Shabbos was the mule. Was the cross between the donkey and the, and the horse. The mule. So I was reading the daf. I was grateful that we don't make a bracha. You don't have to have a mule to make a bracha on his part of Avdallah and Matashavs. Anyway, the Torah continues, Gedilum Tasalach. This is in contrast. You have to have tzitzis. Why does it follow shotness? To tell us, even if, even though the strings on the, on the corners are the wool and the garment is linen, so the positive commandment of tzitzis supersedes the negative prohibition of mixing ingredients of shotness. Good. Torah continues. The defamation of a married woman. What happens if she's falsely accused of, of uh, having infidelity? If the accusation is true, adultery, the prohibition, a betrothed maiden, a anara mu'urasa, a girl who is engaged, it means much more than engaged today. We use the term engaged today to mean that there's a commitment to get married, but there's no halachic status to that commitment. Today, but anara mu'urasa, um, which is Arison, is the first segment of what we think of as the wedding today, had halachic significance to it. There's a level of marriage. So that's considered to be a true act of infidelity. The Torah tells us that if a woman is, uh, is, is uh, disloyal to her husband, she is forbidden to remain married to her husband, nor is she permitted to be married to the one with whom she's cheated. They're both off limits. She's not allowed either, the Torah tells us. Okay, continue. Forbidden and restricted marriages. A mamzer. Mamzer is not allowed to marry within the Jewish people. Can only marry another mamzer. A amoni uh, moavi. Does that mean just the males, the females? Adomi, an Edomite, and uh, so on and so forth. Why? The Torah gives us the reasons. We believe that there are genetic predispositions towards certain behavior. So people who are genetically predisposed towards cruelty, towards a lack of kindness, we don't want their genetic material entering our people. Is that racist? Is that biased? Is that elitist? 
I don't know. It's not politically correct, I guess, but it's the halacha. Torah is saying now again it's not so practical today other than the case of the Mamzer because we've lost the identity of who these people are Ammoni and Moavi if you remember that's the story of David HaMelech who's David HaMelech's great grandmother? Rus Ruth from where, what tribe is she from? Moab the nation of Moab it says Moavi so there was a big question if you look in, in, in the say for Shmuel and you see the hesitation of Shmuel to um, declare David the monarch the hesitation was his lineage. Maybe he's invalid. Maybe he's not uh, a candidate. Why? Because, so no, then they remembered the halacha. It says, Moavi Moavis. A male Moavi cannot enter the Jewish people. But a female from the tribe, namely Rus, was allowed to enter the people. David Amalek is kosher, and he's more than kosher. He becomes the progenitor of Mashiach. But here the Torah tells us why they can't enter. A mitzri, and so on and so forth. Okay, the sanctity of the camp. A slave, sexual purity, prohibition of lending with interest, Torah delineates you can't lend with interest to a Jew. Specifically, you can lend to a non Jew. We've talked about this also in the past. Why is that? If lending with interest is immoral and unethical, why can you do it to a non Jew? If lending with interest is, is ethical, then why can't you lend with interest to a fellow Jew? And the answer is lending with interest is perfectly ethical. There is a time value to money. If you take my $10,000 for a year, the $10,000 was worth something to me. I could have spent it. I could have earned interest on it. I could have invested it. I've lost a time value of money. I've lost money by lending it to you. Right? So there's a time value. It's ethical to charge you interest. However, if you're my brother, if my brother comes to me and says, I'm on hard times. I can't pay the electric bill. Could you lend me a few dollars? I say, sure. Sign right here. It'll be 6% with a balloon payment with it. I'm a lowlife. Who lends their brother with interest? So that's what the Torah is trying to do, is cultivate within us a sense of, all Jews are my brother. I can't lend a Jew with interest, not because it's unethical to lend with interest. It's completely ethical to lend with interest. So I can lend to the rest of the world with interest. But every Jew is my brother. And when they come to me needing a loan, it would be wrong for me to say, no problem, just sign here on the dotted line with interest. Now, of course, we have a way out. We have a heter iska. We have a contract which structures the loan as an investment rather than as a loan. So there are many cases. Otherwise, how does, you know, how does every bank in Israel operate? They're charging interest. How do Jews do business with one another? So we have a heterisco. We structure it as an investment with a dividend rather than as a loan with interest, which is somewhat semantical, but uh, nevertheless accomplishes the halachic goal and hopefully also accomplishes the, the uh, spirit of the law which is that there's nothing wrong with investing with your brother, expecting a return on it. There is something wrong with lending to your brother, expecting interest on it. That's Rabbi Fox. Good. So this, right. So since the since it's reciprocal with the non-Jew, there's no discrimination. Whereas with the Jew, right, you're Rabbi Fox bringing a very important point. The prohibition of interest. Again, this is all. I want to get to our psukim. The prohibition of interest is both to lend or to borrow. There's a prohibition on both parties, the lender and the borrower. One is not allowed to borrow with interest, and one is not allowed to lend with interest. So there's a reciprocal prohibition. Whereas with the non-Jew, there's nothing discriminatory because it's reciprocal. Permission. Okay, in the Durham, you have to pay 
make good on your vow. If you pledge a korban to Hashem, you're not allowed to delay or not pay. Here's another very important halacha, which is uh, often neglected, which is, uh, or not this one yet, but a uh, worker's right to eat, a worker has a right to benefit. Divorce and remarriage. People forget that divorce is also a mitzvah, one of the 613. Now, divorce is not a mitzvah like putting on tzitzis or t- putting on tefillin or lighting Shabbos candles. It's not a positive commandment that we encourage people to go out and do. But it means, unlike other religions, where divorce is not a real possibility, in Judaism, divorce is a mitzvah. In a circumstance where the couple should no longer be married, divorce too is a mitzvah. It's sad, it's tragic, we do everything we can to avoid it. But there are circumstances where one should recognize that unlike Christianity, or Catholicism I guess in particular, Judaism recognizes that, uh, that gerishin, that divorce, sometimes is a, is a mitzvah. Um, and that's from this Pasuk. You have to write the get, and she goes on her way, they separate. Yes? And that's why it yielded. Yeah, maybe it resulted in a rebellious son because he didn't... Right. Now, as Rashi here says, again, this isn't the section we're going to go through, but if you just look at Rashi, I'll keep saying that until we have five minutes left. If you look at Rashi, Ampasagalaf of Perak of Dalad, Ki ervas davar, mitzvah alav gersha shalotim tzachin be'enav. When there's an adversarial relationship growing, when there's a disdain, when there's no longer love, when someone is repulsed by the, their other party, there's a mitzvah, it's a mitzvah to get divorced. Because marriage, Jewish definition of marriage is not to tolerate one another. It's to love one another. By the way, you have the opposite halacha. You have the opposite halacha. It is forbidden to get married without seeing one another. In fact, I'm about to say it's not going to be appreciated. But the woman is allowed to get married without seeing the man. A man is forbidden to get married without seeing the woman. It's a Gemara Kedushin. Why? Oh boy. Hold on. He could have a shliach, right. Why is that? Because the Gemara says, Tav of Tandumi, of Armalo. A woman would prefer to have companionship than be alone. So not to say that she'll take anyone, but the woman wants companionship. Whereas the man would rather be on the couch watching football. Okay, what are you going to do? He's got to get married. But he needs to make sure that he's attracted to the woman that he's marrying. So that's the, that is in fact the halacha. The halacha is, Gemara Kedushin, a man is forbidden from marrying a woman without seeing her. In other words, you have to remember, in, in old days, a man would send an agent. Think about Avram and Eliezer. But a man would send an agent. Go find a wife for me. Marriages were arranged. Go see a girl. If she's pleasing to your eye, if she has the qualities, okay. So not only should you make the shidduch, you will act as my agent to marry her. When you give her the ring, I will be married to her. So the halacha comes along and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't do that without seeing her first. What if the agent brings her home you're married to her, and you say, Ugh. <laughs> You spend a, a night, you spend a day with her, you spend a week with her, and you say, I can't stand her. I can't, I can't deal with two more minutes being with her. So the Gemara says, you're going to violate via hafta l'reacha kamocha. Do you know how she's going to feel knowing she's the object of your scorn? Do you know how she's going to feel being rejected by you? Do you know, is there anything more insensitive than that? So you can't marry her until you know that you're in love. So love is a necessary prerequisite and component to marriage. Both before marriage, Abba getting a man to see the woman, and after marriage. So much so that Rashi says, 
mitzvah lav lagarsha shalotim tzachin be'enav. When she no longer, or when he to her, no longer finds favor, there's no longer an attraction, there's no longer, you know, when I, I do a lot of marriage counseling, not on my own, I obviously refer to competent therapists, but try to play a complementary role. And often, part of the effort is to say to them, what, you know, something that's funny that they never thought of or no one asked them, but you know, you ask the husband or the wife, how long you married? We're married uh, 14 years, 30 years, 7 years. What made you fall in love? Go back to when you were dating. Why'd you get married to him? Why'd you get married to her? What attracted you to him? What attracted you to her? And they, they have to go through the exercise of trying to remember what that was. Well, do they still have those qualities? Have they changed or have you changed? Has life changed? That now there's kids and money and tuition and everything else on top of it. But what attracted you to one another... And those attractive qualities, are they still there buried within? Can we bring them to the surface again? Can you start dating one another? Can you court one another again to see those attractive qualities? So Rashi is saying that when those qualities are no longer, they can no longer be brought to the surface, they're no longer recognizable, they're so blunted, they're so invisible, it's a mitzvah lagarsha. At that point there's a mitzvah. And the Torah tells us, can you get remarried? It depends. If you've not been with anyone else in the meantime, absolutely. Except for a Kohen. A Kohen who divorces his wife can never take her back. A Kohen who divorces his wife cannot take her back. I've been present for many, for a number of times the Kohen delivered a get to his wife and that is a powerful moment because there's no turning back. There's nothing he can do to marry her again. You talk about it's over, it's over. It's very powerful. But uh, a non-Kohen... So they can get divorced and they can remarry as long as she has not been with anyone else. He can still... <laughs> I'll tell you why, again. It's not popular because biblically speaking, biblically speaking, biblically speaking, he can have more than one wife. So it's rabbinically speaking, we take very seriously, polygamy is prohibited today, it's not allowed to be practiced, but since, strictly speaking, biblically speaking, he could, so therefore it wouldn't uh, preclude. But if she was with anyone else intimately or she remarried someone else, then they would not be able to come back together again. Okay. We go from uh, here from marriage into the laws of kidnapping. You can derive your own conclusions <laughs> what the connection is. Um, and then we have uh, tzara, slander. Um, we have the dignity of the debtor paying the person back, giving them their, their um, what do you call it? Collateral. And here we have halacha, very important. The prohibition, we have it in the negative and the positive. In Parshish Kedoshim, it's in the negative. You're not allowed to hold the wages overnight. And here we have it in the positive. You're obligated to pay. There's a negative commandment and a positive commandment corresponding with our obligation to pay a worker on time. He's poor without the money he deserves. What's the Hebrew word we use in the Gemara, at least the Aramaic word we use to describe money? Damim. Why damim? Blood. Because of, we, we, we give our blood for our money. And the money is our blood. It's our life source. Without money, you can't keep the lights on, the air conditioning on. You can't pay the gas. You can't, uh, you can't buy food. You can't put food on the table. Money is our life. So money is called damim. It's called blood. It's our life. So when you, someone does work for you and you don't pay them that day... You've withheld their life. You've, you've, you've uh, done something tantamount to a little bit of murder. So there's an obligation to pay a worker on time. We talked last night between Mencha and Marav, a lot of details of this obligation. Very interesting obligation. When are you obligated to pay them? 
when they finish the work or when you pick it up. So you have a dry cleaner or a tailor and you arranged for it to be done on Tuesday but you didn't bother getting there till Wednesday or Thursday to pick it up. Did you violate the prohibition by not paying them on Tuesday? Or is it the prohibition is only false when you didn't pick it up? Interesting discussion in halacha. Another interesting discussion in halacha. Can you pay with a check? I have a babysitter and I bring her home 11 o'clock at night when I come home from the wedding. I say to her, I'm out of cash. Can I give you a check? Now what's the problem? The bank is closed. She can't cash the check. So is the, cash even, is the check even worth something? Have I violated the prohibition because she can't cash the check until tomorrow? So is a check the equivalent of cash? Some places they endorse checks and exchange it like cash. So maybe a check is like cash. On the other hand, maybe a check is like a shtachov. Maybe it's like a contract. It's not really cash and I violated the prohibition. I have to pay the worker on time. So this is a very serious halacha. The obligation to pay a person, you can't say. There's even a question in halacha whether they can be mochel, whether they can forgive it. So you say to someone, I don't have cash right now, is it okay if I pay you next time? You know, your kid's piano teacher, the babysitter, the person in the store, the tip to the waiter, the, kid, the ride to the airport. It's a big discussion in halacha. Your person worked for you, you're obligated to pay them in a timely fashion. We won't even get into Rebbeim and Yeshiva and Kolel, <laughs> paying them on time. But this is a biblical mandate a biblical uh, obligation and prohibition. Okay. Torah that tells us, the obligation to not pervert the just, judgment, justice, the orphan and the widow, one of the most repeated halacha in the Torah, right? Apropos what we were saying before, the Torah is trying to cultivate, refine us to be good people. The obligation to give, uh, give uh, from our field, from our produce to poor people, and so on. Then we have Malchus, if there's a fight between two people, Bez then adjudicates, they come to a conclusion, and they give Malchus, they give lashes. We have the mitzvah of Yibum, of love right marriage. Very interesting Ramban here, on the mitzvah of Yibum. You know what the Ramban says on the mitzvah of Yibum? This is the origin of the Jewish source of reincarnation. What is Yibum? Yibum means that if a man dies without children, so his brother should marry the wife. If he can. Carry if, he's if he can to be able to carry on the family name. Mm-hmm. Says the Ramban, why? Because the soul of the deceased brother will live on through the child. This is the source of reincarnation. Now, no, that's only one view. Sadiqon, there's others who reject the concept of reincarnation. I personally find it more compelling to reject reincarnation because I find reincarnation just leaves too many questions. Leaves too many questions. Forget now, but in the world to come. Who, who are you in, in Tchiyas HaMesim? Who do you come back as? Who are you married to? In, 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 for eternity, in the world to come, who do you have a relationship who, who Are you the tree, the bush, the person, the dog? You're the man married to the woman, the woman married to the man. Are these your kids? Are they not your kids? Are they? It's way too, it gives me too much of a headache. So it appeals to me the view that says, ah, we don't believe in reincarnation. But there is, there, you, be comforted to know that both views are represented within Judaism. I think Rabbi Yitzchak Blau, one of the Rabbi Blau's, has an article on the subject, in, I think in Torah Madha Journal, about the concept of uh, the Jewish view of reincarnation. We, of course, don't have Yibum today. Um, the alternative to Yibum is Chalitza, the ceremony with the shoe. And we don't have Yibum today because the Torah mandates that Yibum is only allowed if it's Lishma. The husband, ha- the, the brother, has to be intimate with his deceased brother's wife L'shem Yibam. And since we don't trust our sense of, um, what's the word, L'shma, doing things for the right intent, or we question 
the ability to have pure intent altogether today, we have taken that option off the table. So Yibam is not an alternative. Chalitza is. And Chalitza is still practiced regularly. But they didn't. Chalitza is a requirement. In other words, if a man dies without children, his brother has what's called a zika. He automatically has a bond to his sister-in-law, a halachically binding connection. And the only way to release himself of that, of that bond is through chalitza. Yechavit's grandmother had to do chalitza after the war. They determined through testimony after the Holocaust that her children were killed before her husband. She was married with two children before the war. In Auschwitz, her children were murdered before her husband which meant that her husband died with no children. And he had a, a brother that survived. So her, she had to undergo chalitza before she was able to marry Yochevet's grandfather. So chalitza is still, is still practiced today. Okay, prohibition of embarrassing someone, honest weights and measures, Torah here tells us. Interestingly, I always like to point this out, when it comes to a, um, Evan Shalema, the idea of having honest weights and measures, which essentially are honest business practices, what does the Torah call it? It's a to'eva. It's an abomination. We like to throw the word abomination around having to do with one particularly egregious deed. And I don't mean to suggest that it's not also a to'eva, despite modern culture depiction of it. But we would do well to remember that the Torah calls a lot of things an abomination. So, calling, you know, having lunch with your friend and putting it on your business credit card and taking a tax write-off is as much an abomination as these other things that we so easily call an abomination. So being dishonest on, on taxes and in business practices is also called a to'eva. And then of course the Parsha ends. Whew. Nothing like the introduction taking up the majority of the class. The uh, Torah ends, Parsha ends with the Zachor, remembering Amalek. This is what we read in Parsha Zachor, Shabbos before Purim. This is Parsha Zachor. In fact, those who were unable to be in Shul and hear Parsha Zachor then should listen the Shabbos carefully in Shul. You could fulfill the mitzvah of Zachor. This is considered to be likely the only Torah portion, part of Torah, which we're biblically obligated to read. The rest of Torah that we read, Ezra was Metakein, Moshe was Metakein. The rest of Torah reading that we do were later enactments. The only Torah reading that we do publicly that's biblically mandated is this, Parsha Zachor, the obligation to remember. We are a people that remember. In fact, it comes up because often you have bar mitzvah boys. How do bar mitzvah boys read the Torah for us? What does it take for a bar mitzvah boy to be considered a gadol, to be considered having reached the age of majority? He needs shanim v'simanim. To be a bar mitzvah, or a bas mitzvah for that matter, you need years, 13, and simanim. You need to show the signs of puberty. You need to show the signs of maturity. Now, I meet with every bar mitzvah child before their bar mitzvah, but it's only to talk about... (laughs) They're bar mitzvah. So how do we know that a child has shanam v'simanim? How are we so confident that they can read the Torah? And the answer is, the Gemara talks about chazaka derava. We have a chazaka. We have a... Um, how do you translate chazaka? We have a... Practice? It's more than a practice. It's a statistical... We believe statistically that most boys who've reached 13 have the signs of maturity and we rely on that. So we are only allowed to rely on that for rabbinic mitzvahs. So that's why a bar mitzvah child can read every parsha for us, because it's only rabbinic to hear the parsha, even though we haven't confirmed they have the signs of maturity, but we rely on the chazaka, we rely on the statistical evidence. Uh, however, parsha zachor, a bar mitzvah boy, cannot read. 
That's why we don't rely on, unless, you know, if the bar mitzvah boy has a nice full-grown mustache um, <laughs> beard coming in. But we don't rely on the bar mitzvah boy to read Parsha Zachor because it's the one part that's biblically obligated. And so, um, and so uh, we can't rely on the chazaka derava of the boy at the age of maturity. Okay. All that is by way of introduction, just an overview of the Parsha. What I'd like to look at together specifically is Perak Chaf Bez, Pasuk Vav. Chapter 22, verse 6. And this is the mitzvah of Shiluach Cain or Kam. The mitzvah to send the mother bird away when we take the children. It's on page 1050 in the Stone Chumash. 1050. Some pronounce it Shiluach HaKan. Some pronounce it Shiluach HaKain. Which is it? Cain or Kan? What? Grammatically, which one is more correct? There's a lot written on it. Believe, believe it or not. <laughs> People debated. Sam Sofer, I think, said it was Hakain, because he has a poem in the beginning of his tshuva and to make it rhyme. Eh? So, but, uh, but there's different traditions. This is, I mean, the word means the same thing either way. It's a nest. But is it Khan or is it Cain? We'll use them interchangeably. So let's look at these verses. It's Perach uh, Avesh, chapter 22, verse 6, Puzzle Vav. Page 1050. Says the Habanim. We're gonna look we're only gonna study two psukim. Um, so the Torah tells us if a bird's nest happens to you on the road, on any tree or on the ground, young birds or eggs, the mother is roosting on the young birds, the mother is sitting on the birds or the eggs, you shall ta- not take the mother with the young, but rather instead, continuing Pasuk Zion, instead, send the mother away, and then you can take the eggs. It'll be good for you, and you will be blessed with longevity, with a long life. You see a number of halachas right away in the Pasuk. Does it apply if the father is roosting on the nest? No. This mitzvah only applies if it's the mother roosting on the nest. Apparently, fathers roost on the nest during the day and mothers at night, which complicates the fulfillment of this mitzvah. But the mitzvah only applies, it says, Ha'aim, ki yikari kansipur, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, And the mother is roosting. So you see, first of all, that it applies to the mother. Does the mitzvah apply in a positive commandment form? Or only if the mitzvah presents itself. In other words, I have to put on tzitzit, I put on tzitzit, I put on, I build a sukkah, I carry my lulav. Do I have to go find a nest and fulfill this mitzvah? Or is it if I want the eggs of a nest, this is the only way to access them. So that, believe it or not, is a machlokas. I have a sefer here. My favorite genre of svarim that I collect are the kihilchasas. It's a modern genre that's come out, which is everything kehilchasa. Everything under the sun, a compendium of the laws, the halachas of. The halachas of Hashava Saveda, returning a lost object. The halachas of Tsar Bali Chaim. The halachas of Malafa Malka. The halachas of... So I have a sefer, Shalech Teshalach, it's Shiloh Hakein Kehilchasa. The whole book on the mitzvah of sending the mother bird away. Very interesting book. Very interesting halachas. So, here he quotes, there's a machlokas, all of this is based on, there's a whole parak in Chulim, Sechus Chulim, dedicated to this topic, Shiloh HaKen. So there's a machlokas between the Chavaz Yair, written by Rav Yar Bachrach. Rav Yar Bachrach was a great rabbi in Germany a couple centuries ago. 
Rav Yer Bachrach and the Chassam Sofer, Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Today, Rav Chaim Kanievsky has a sefer on uh, Shiloh Hakain. So there's a machlokas. Rav Yer Bachrach is of the opinion that this is a positive commandment. Even if you don't need eggs, go out and find a nest. Go out and find a nest and you fulfill the mitzvah. Just like go out and do other mitzvahs. You should go out. In other words, the little secret that we don't tell little Jewish boys. You don't have to wear tzitzis. There's no obligation to wear tzitzis. If you're wearing a four-cornered garment, you can only wear it if you have tzitzis on the corners. But if you don't want to wear a four-cornered garment, you're not obligated to. And we don't wear four-cornered garments today. So don't tell anybody, but that's the little secret. You don't really have to wear tzitzis. But we try to inculcate that you have to wear it. It's a mitzvah. You have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, you do a mitzvah. You wear tzitzis each and every day. Tzitzis, it's very important. Of course you wear tzitzis. So... According to Yerabachrach, it's like the mitzvah of tzitzah. You go, put on, you go find a nest and do the mitzvah. According to many, Chazanish, Chazam Sofer, Abnezer, and more modern, the, uh, I'm sorry, the Rav Chaim Kanievsky, the halacha uh, is, no, only if you want the eggs, the only way to access them is by sending the mother bird away. But if I'm not interested in the eggs, I have no obligation to do this mitzvah. And there's no reason for me to search it out. Now, today's day and age, it's become popular based on a Zohar, try to fulfill this mitzvah like everything else it's a skula everything's a skula it's a skula okay you know my feelings on skulas but if you uh, fulfill this it's a skula for having children it's a skula for this it's a skula for that it's a skula in the sense that mitzvahs are a skula am segula right we learned in our zmiro shir last Shabbos menucha besimcha am skula the Ramban writes in the Pasuk banim atem lashem where an am segula skula means because we embrace and we fulfill mitzvahs we are treasured people to Hashem because we fulfill His mitzvahs. We have 613 schoolers. We don't have to look for other ones. So if you, if you fulfill the mitzvah of Shiluach HaKan as a schooler because it's a mitzvah, so then it's a mitzvah. Then it's a schooler. If you're doing it because you think that it's some heebie mystical, uh, magical, uh, now everything's going to be okay, that's another religion. That's not ours. So anyway, you have this machlokis between the Chavaz Yair, Rechan Kanievsky, about whether there's a mitzvah. What does it rely upon? What does it revolve around? Look at the Pasuk, because we're looking at the words. What does it say? Ki yikarei. What does the word yikarei mean? Oh, so the art scroll translates it as, let's see, if a bird's nest happens to be before you, happens upon you. I would choose the word to read it, not yikarei, happens before you, but if a bird's nest calls out to you. Right? Very Hasidish way of reading it. Mitzvahs call out to us. Opportunities call out to us. If we're in the vicinity of something, right, the Bashem said that um, we should live our lives always knowing that we are in the vicinity of something, it was meant to be, it was by design. There's no coincidences. How did the Bashem touch the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. What does it say? Always know what's above you. Mm-hmm. So the Baal Shem Tov said, what does it mean? It means, always know that God is above you, and therefore, I and Roa, everything your eye sees, you are meant to see. Mm-hmm. Everything your ear hears, it was meant to hear. And how you react to everything around you, will be recorded. Because it wasn't by coincidence, it was by design, that's why God put you there. So ki kare means... You walked by that nest, that wasn't a coincidence. In fact, I don't have time to develop it, but you contrast this to the end of the parsha. What's the whole problem with Amalek? Asher korcha baderach. Zachor, isa shirasolacha Amalek, baderach mitzvah mitzvahim. Asher korcha baderach. That word korcha, Rashi says, has three interpretations. One is lashon mikra. They happened upon you. Amalek happened upon you. 
Another is Lashon Keri, Vituma, that they brought, they contaminated you. And a third is Kor, meaning cold. We were on fire. We were excited. We were passionate. And they poured a bucket of ice water on our head and they cooled us off from the passion and excitement that we had from our Sinai. But one of Rashi's interpretation is, you know what the danger of Amalek is? The philosophy, this is what we talked about last year's Parsha class. The philosophy of Amalek is, is Mikra, happenstance, chance, a world of randomness. And we don't believe in Mikra. We believe in a world of Ki Kare. Same root. But we believe in a world that calls out to us. It's not a world of Mikra, of chance and happenstance and randomness. It's a world of Ki Kare. It's calling out to us. If I have this job opportunity right now, it's because that if I met this person, if I was in this vicinity, if, I, if they need my help, if wherever I am, whatever happens, it's not a coincidence. It's not by chance. If I was there, it's by design. It was meant to be that I was there. And how I react to that design for me to be there, Pasefer Nechtavim will be recorded. So, Ki Yi Karei, Rashi says, Ki Yi Karei Prat quotes the Sifri. This is the Halacha Gemara. And Rechulon also says, Prat you're only obligated in this mitzvah if you happen upon the nest. You can't bring a nest and put it in a tree and set up mothers to sit on the eggs and, that, and then do the mitzvah. If it's orchestrated, you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah. The mitzvah is only fulfilled if it's not orchestrated. If it was not orchestrated. Ki yikarei prat It has to be that it was not orchestrated. What about chickens? We have to shoot them away? Kosher birds. It applies to kosher birds on a nest. Chickens don't have a nest. Chickens have a nest? They would sit on the eggs. But they, I don't know, they have a nest. Yeah, they don't eat the nest. Pasuk says, I guess it applies in the arts also, but I don't think it applies to chickens. I don't think it applies to chickens. Mm-hmm. Now the main thing, what I really want to study with you, in the limited time that we have, is this Ramban. Is the Ramban. Let's look at a few other things quickly, then we'll come back to the Ramban, because that's the main, the main thing to study here on this, on this mitzvah and this Pasuk. The, uh, first of all, the... Um, Rashi lo sikachaim pa'uda albane. You're not allowed to take the mother while she's still on the children. Um, the Rashbam, Reb Shmuel Bemeir, lo sikachaim alabanim. Lefi derecheretz. What's the reason for this mitzvah? It's basic derecheretz. We're going to talk tonight. We're starting our four-part series for Elul. On Gemara says in Brachos, on Daf Lamed Beis, that four things need chizuk: arba tzrich and chizuk, Torah derecheretz, gemilas chasadim, and Torah tefila. So tonight's topic is Derech Eretz. So the Rashbam says, why shouldn't you take the mother, the eggs, when the mother's there? It's not Derech Eretz. And the Rashbam now is referencing what we'll get into in the Ramban. Now the Torah promises us, says Rashi, If the Torah is willing to promise us such a great reward for an easy mitzvah, sending the mother bird away while you take the eggs is a relatively easy mitzvah. If we're promised such a rich reward, longevity and goodness for an easy mitzvah, all the more so for a mitzvah that is difficult and that takes great and that takes great effort. The um, Svarno says, you know why you get that mitzvah, that, that reward? Look at the Svarno. When you do this mitzvah, you think you're doing something insignificant? You're doing something very significant. What is it? You are actually um, securing the species. If you take the mother and the eggs at the same time, 
you could end the species. By sending the mother bird away when you take the eggs and she can reproduce more eggs, you're actually preserving the species. And that's a contribution to the world. So that chesed, that sensitivity you show the world by preserving the species, earns a great reward both in this world as well as in the world to come. The Rashi points out the very next mitzvah we said in the Parsha after Shiloh HaKan is Ma'ke. When you have a new home, when you build a new home, make a fence around your roof. So Rashi writes, Why these two topics juxtaposed? Because if you fulfill the mitzvah of Shiloh you will merit to build a new home. And then you'll be able to fulfill the mitzvah of Makkah. She mitzvah goreres mitzvah, v'tagiyah l'kerem v'sada, l'begadam na'im, l'chein nismuchu parashiyas e'la. One mitzvah promotes another mitzvah. Mitzvahs, you know, there's a momentum, the mitzvah train. Get on the mitzvah train. You start doing a mitzvah, one mitzvah, the satisfaction, it feels good, it's moving, it's enriching, it's elevating, you're going to do another mitzvah. One mitzvah, that was the Lubavitcher Rebbe's whole hashkafa. Get women to light Friday night candles, get men to put on tefillin, you don't have to say adopt all of Torah and mitzvahs. Become from, become observant. Just light the candles. The Babacher Rebbe is so subscribed to mitzvah, Gorera's mitzvah, mm-hmm. that if a woman would just light the candles, mm-hmm. it'll feel so good. The light it will bring into her home, the peace, the tranquility, it'll transform the family. It'll be so valuable, she'll say, what's next? What more can I do? What's the next thing I can do? If a man would put on tefillin, he would understand what it means. Mitzvah, Gorera's mitzvah. If it, you don't have to believe, do everything. Do one thing, and the momentum—it's so compelling—we'll carry it forward. Says the Kliyakar, the Manit of Lach, the Arachtu Yamim, Lashon Zanemar Gam Eitzal Kibarav Eim B'Dibras Shnios. Where else do we say the Manit of Lach will be good for you, and you'll have Arichus Yamim, you'll live a long life? We find it with another mitzvah. What other mitzvah? Honoring your parents. Says the Kliyakar, I understand what the blessing is, longevity, richness of life, when it comes to honoring your parents. Why? Because if you take good care of your parents, your children will take good care of you. So what do they learn when they see you send away the mother bird before you take the children? When, the, when your children see the sensitivity you have between the relationships of parents and children, even mother bird with her children, they'll understand. So the reward, it's not a coincidence that the reward for both of these mitzvahs, says the Kliyakar, is longevity. Why? Because both of these mitzvahs strengthen emuna in the world. We believe that there's a concept of everything has a cause. Everything that exists is something that came before it. Every result has a cause, going all the way back to the first cause. Right? In philosophy, it's called the first cause argument. It's one of the arguments advanced evidence for the existence of God. The first cause of the argument is, well, I exist because my parents, and they exist because their parents. Everything that exists because something that came before it. So, if you trace that all the way back, you'll get to a first cause. They love Roy Lachlo Kavod. 
chilak lechol amolid and amishtashlam is a yisbarach misiba lesiba. Alkein hiskir v'chomakom shmiras hashabbos is a mitzvah kibaravaim. Ki hashabbos abalazecher chedesh shalom garon lekei mitzvah kibaravaim. So that's what they have in common is that every time you subscribe to this idea of remembering that there's an earlier cause, it will automatically remind you to go all the way back to the first cause. So when you understand that there's a mother bird with children, when you understand that there are parents and we as children have to give kivarav aim, both of these mitzvahs promote the concept of remembering the first cause and therefore they increase and promote emuna in the world. Right? So go to the next paragraph. And it's for this reason that the Torah juxtaposes this commandment to building a new home. The Amr Razala Rabbi said, what connection in the world is there between sending the bird away and the merit to build a new home? Because you believe that God created the world and constantly recreates the world and reinforces the existence of the world. By sending the mother bird away and remembering there's a concept of first cause, result, God exists, He created the world. You, you get to create something now, you merit to build a new home, which is your creation. So it's Midah connected Midah, the reward corresponds with what you're fulfilling through the Mitzvah. Let's go to the Ramban. This is the most important thing. The Ramban in this Mitzvah of Shiloh HaKan has a discussion. Gamzu Mitzvah, everyone see the Ramban? If you're following inside, Pasuk Vav. Perak Chafbeis, Pasuk Vav. Says the Ramban. Gamzu Mitzvah Mivu Eres the Pasuk in Vayikra says that you're not allowed to shecht an uh, animal and its child on the same day. You're not allowed to. You can't shecht the, shecht the cow and the calf on the same day. So says the Ramban, this mitzvah is similar to that. Why? The same, they have the same reason. Because the Torah does not want us to be cruel. And to kill a mother and a child on the same day is cruelty. Whatever we believe about, at, about animals and their awareness and their soul and so on and so forth, but to kill a mother and a child on the same day, forget the impact on the animal. What about the impact on us? It will yield cruelty, insensitivity. The Torah doesn't want us to feel that. Plus it will destroy that species. <laughs> to kill the parent and the child on the same day, or to take the mother and the eggs at the same time, is to... It's insensitive and it will end the species. reason. That it's going to create a lev achzari. It's going to promote cruelty. And the Torah wants to achieve the opposite. Make us more sensitive. Lo not make us cruel. He continues by quoting the Rambam. Says the Rambam in Morinavuchim. You know why you can't kill the mother and the father and the son on the same day? You know why you can't take the eggs with the mother there? Because animals have feelings too. Forget the impact on us. Forget that we are trying to avoid becoming cruel. How about don't do it because it's cruel? Because the animal has feelings, says the Rambam. And the animal b- will feel pain. Mm-hmm. Because, this is a very interesting insight of the Rambam. 
says, the love a parent instinctively, intuitively feels for a child is not a function of cognition. It's not a function of the brain, of intellect. Animals don't have great intellect. Animals don't have self-awareness. Animals don't have rational thinking. Animals don't have a human soul. But says the Rambam, love of a parent for a child doesn't come from any of those things. It comes from even an animal instinct within us. It's natural. And therefore, an animal is drawn to and feels love and loyalty towards a child like a human being does. Because it doesn't come from the human part of the experience. It's so basic. It's so base. It comes from the animal part. When you see a parent, by the way, a human parent, who is not drawn to and doesn't show that love and sensitivity to their child, it means they're lower than an animal. They may be smarter, they might have a greater IQ than the dog, but they're lower than an animal. Because an animal instinctively has that trait, and a human being who doesn't have that predisposition to love the child is missing, is lower than an animal. Just hold your questions for a second, because we're running out of time. But the, the Ramban doesn't like the Rambam and says, no, it appears to me more not because we care about the animal's feelings, but because we care about ourselves. We don't want to become insensitive. It's not that we don't want to hurt the animal's feelings. Whether the animal has feelings or not, in other words, for the Rambam, if the animal didn't have feelings, there wouldn't be a problem of killing the parent and child on the same day. According to the Ramban, it has nothing to do with the animal's feelings. Even if the animal had no feelings, it's as if you shouldn't cut down the big tree and the sapling on the same day. In other words, it has nothing to do with the animal. It has to do with us. We should not put ourselves into behavior, into a lifestyle, into a pattern that displays cruelty or insensitivity. We need to cultivate ourselves to be kind. The Gemara Brachos Daf Lamed Gimel says that Haomer, it's a Mishnah, Haomer HaKansipor Yagir Rachamecha Yatov Yizach Hashemecha or Modim Modim Meshaskin or so. Says the Mishnah in Brachos, three things if a human being says it, we overhear someone say it, we silence them. We don't allow them to say it. So if you hear someone say, oh, I went to the class today and I heard about the mitzvah of sending the mother bird away when you take the child, and you know why God wanted us to do that? Because... God showed compassion to the mother bird. Says the Mishnah, we silence such a person. Now why? Why do we silence the person? What's wrong with what they're saying? So the Gemara tells us, because they are, they're matal kina, because they're causing jealousy among God's creatures. I understand, you could take the kittens without sending the mother, bird, mother cat away. You could take the puppies without sending the mother dog away. All these other animals you're allowed to, why is God showing favor to the bird? By the way, the mitzvah only applies to a kosher bird. Shiloh HaKain is only fulfilled with a kosher bird. So why, why is God showing favor to the bird? You're going to incite jealousy in the animal kingdom, so that's why we silence. That's what the Gemara says. But this is the big debate among the Rishonim, and that's what the Ramban is alluding to here. Unfortunately, we're really out of time. But this machlok is between the Ramban and the Rambam, and then it expresses itself in how you understand that Gemara in Brachos. Is Meshaskin or so, do we silence him because he's wrong? God wasn't showing compassion. It has nothing to do with compassion to the animal. It has to do with, according to the Ramban, he's going to understand the Gemara. God's not showing compassion to the animal. God's showing compassion to us. He doesn't want us to become insensitive people, cruel people. According to the Rambam, 
God is showing compassion to the animal. So why do we silence the person? For a different reason. We don't give the reasons for mitzvahs. It's not for us to suggest the reasons for mitzvahs. Why? So there's a gemara, another Gemara that explains why. Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daf Chaf Aleph. Why doesn't the Torah give us the reasons for mitzvahs? Wouldn't it make sense? The Torah said, I want you not to mix wool and linen, and here's why. I want you to do this, and here's why. Here's the meaning. Why did the Torah tell us why? So the Gemara says, because God tried it twice. It says, you shouldn't have too many wives. And Shlomo Amalek said... Ah, I can have more wives, it won't be a problem. And what happened? He was led astray. That was last week's parsha. Don't have too many horses. Why? You're going to end up going back to Egypt. So Shlomo Melch said, Ah, I can have horses, I'm not going to go back to Egypt. And what happened? Shlomo went back to Egypt. So twice it gave the reason. He said, Ah, the reason doesn't apply to me. The reason doesn't apply today. I understand the reason. I can that. So therefore, says the Gemara, God withheld the reasons. He said, I'm the king, I'm giving you the enactments, the edicts. It's almost like a doctor who prescribes the medicine but holds something back. Because if, if he tells you too much, you're going to start to play with the, the measurement. And, if the doctor, and, and you're not, you don't know as much as the doctor. So if the doctor tells you too much, I can take one pill, I don't need two. I can take it in the morning, in the evening, I can take it without food, I don't need with food, I can take it. Eh. The doctor just says, just take the pills. That's it. Don't ask me questions. Just take the medicine. I know what I'm doing. I went to medical school. So... Not to say doctors are perfect. Yeah, or close to it. Right, the analogy, right. Now the Gemara says elsewhere, Tov from the Gehenim. The best of doctors are destined to hell. <laughs> A lot of interesting explanations why that is. But anyway, right, the most prevalent explanation is because most doctors think they are perfect. Which means they're going to, they're going to make uh, mistakes that could have been avoided. Anyway, so, but, but my point is that according to the Rambam, the reason so the reason that we saw the person is, don't say the reason for God's mitzvahs. Because the next person will say, yeah, the reason doesn't apply to me, the reason doesn't apply today, I can get around the reason. We do not suggest the reason for God's mitzvahs. So that's a whole study unto itself. Tamea mitzvahs. What are the reasons? Do we do mitzvah for the reason? Or is the reason just an additional benefit? I'll give you a hint and we'll end with that. The word tam means two things. It means reason and it means taste. Why is that? Reason. Why does the word ta'am mean reason and taste? What do reason and taste have in common? I'll leave you that to think about. Have a great week.